Well, good evening and welcome. And I want to bless you and thank you for joining in, those of you that, that join in. And I welcome you as you join in. Tonight, we're going to continue on in our series, Run Kitty Run, where we're exploring the names of God. And we've talked about several already. Tonight, we're going to take on another one called El Elyon, or God Most High, the Lord Most High. Sometimes it's translated. So let's pray and get started. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us tonight to understand who you are as God Most High and what that means to us. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name you will bless this study. Pray that you will bless those who are able to join in tonight or perhaps at another time. Father, I pray that your word will go forth in power and in might and in the anointing of the Spirit of God and that you will feed your people, Lord. I pray that you will help me to deliver this word as a faithful steward of the Most High God. And Father, I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name I ask these things. And I bless your people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to you as you join in. Hallelujah. So tonight we're looking at El Elyon, or God Most High, or the Lord Most High. It's used many times in the Old Testament and also a few times in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, when Gabriel went to Mary and announced that she would be having Jesus, she would be having the baby that would be the Son of God, he was called, she told, he told, Gabriel told Mary that he would be called the Son of the Highest. So El Elyon speaks to us about the Most High God. Welcome to you as you join in. This name automatically gives us some indication of what it is just because we understand some of these terms. But I'm hoping tonight to share with you some other things that, that may make this become a little clearer to you and deepen your understanding. So it does speak to us of the sovereignty and power of the Lord Most High, the one who is exalted, the one who is exalted, the highest, the uppermost. It's interesting, it talks about the exaltedness and overwhelming majesty of God, his supremacy. He is the highest God. It's, it gives the idea of omnipotence. And it also gives the place, it speaks of the place of protection and safety for Israel. It stresses God's total supremacy and he is the most exalted one. So when we praise the Most High, we are worshiping the one whose power, mercy, and sovereignty cannot be matched. Anne Spangler mentioned that in her Names of God Bible. When you praise the Most High God, you are worshiping the one whose power, mercy, and sovereignty cannot be matched. Hallelujah. It speaks of being higher, raised, lifted up, something that's lifted up. There's several scripture references that I'd like for us to get to tonight that will help us in our understanding of this. And I always attempt to make everything sound based upon scripture. That is always the key in any study that you partake of is to have it solidly, firmly established by the scriptures. So I'm going to endeavor to do that tonight with this name as well. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32, I'm going to begin reading there, and it says this, 
For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you. On earth, he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved you, your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them and he brought you out of Egypt and with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. And verse 39, therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. So here again, this is speaking to us about the fact that there does not exist any other God. He's saying here, you can put out a search that will produce no results. If you searched all of heaven, you will never find all of the universe, all of the earth. You will never find any besides him. You can search it and you will not find even one. There is not one other to be had besides the Lord. I'd like to go now to 2 Samuel chapter 7, excuse me, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18 through 22. And it says this, God has just made a covenant with David, and David is responding here. In verse 18, it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Boy, hear the humility in his heart. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of men, O Lord God? Now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. So here, David also is attesting that there is no one beside God. He recognizes God as the most high God, his kingship, his royalty, and the fact that God, this most high God has been gracious to him to make a royal covenant with him and his house. In Psalm 86, 8, David speaks of how there is 
none like God among the gods or among the little g gods, the others, the false gods or the idols. There are none the same as him. In Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 11. Now this whole chapter seems to be speaking about the comparison of false gods with the real true God. But I just want to pick up chapter 46, verses 5 through 11, and speak and read these to you. To whom God is speaking here, and he says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish. Now here he's talking about the idols. He begins speaking of idols. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales, those who make the idols. They hire a goldsmith, and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place, and it stands from its place. It shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Because it's a dead God. It's a false God. It's an idol made with man's hands. Verse 8. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now listen. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. So here God is saying, there is no comparison among any of these false gods or others that are worshipped. There's no likeness or image that's comparable to the true God, to God Most High. He has no equal. This is important for us to understand because sometimes we can fall into a trap to think that Satan is an equal with God or with the Lord Jesus, and he is not. Remember, we've been studying about Elohim, this or El, this is El Elyon, or Elohim, Elyon. It is God most high. Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the whole of Elohim is the most high God, and none are on their level, none are on their plane. None. They are above. God is above. God himself. I don't mean to speak as if it's three different persons. We worship a God that is one being revealed in three different persons, but he is one God, and we've studied that in an earlier lesson. So just for it, keep in mind, Satan is not equal with Jesus Christ. He is not equal with God. God has no equal. There are several others in Scripture that attest to God Most High, the one who, ha who has no equal and he has no rival. Jeremiah speaks about him in Jeremiah 10, 6 and 7. Joel 
speaks about him in Joel chapter 2, verse 27. Mark writes about him in Mark chapter 12, verse 32, and Paul also in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. But now I want to turn to David, King David, and his mention of this Most High God in Psalm 97. Welcome to you as you join in. In Psalm 97, verses 1 through 9, it says this, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitudes of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods, little g's. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high above, notice this, above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So David here is proclaiming to us that El Elyon, God most high, is most high above all the earth. He sits way up above all the earth and the whole of the universe, and he sees it all. We just read in Isaiah a little bit ago where he sees the end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. Now, just to help us try to understand something, I just want to use a simple example that someone shared with me, and it's a parade idea. Think about this. If you go to a parade as a spectator and you stand on the side of a parade, you have a very restricted view. You can see the things that are right in front of you. You can look ahead and you can see what, you know, what was ahead of you. You can see what's coming next, what's behind you, but you, you don't get to see the whole of the parade from start to finish from that vantage point. But if you're an anchor in a press box, you have a bigger view. You can see a portion of more of what's ahead and what's behind. But if you're in a blimp high up in the sky, you're able to see the end from the beginning. You're able to see it all at the same time. And you're able to know exactly what, in what order things are happening, what's happened at the first, what's happening at the last, you can see it all from that vantage point. You can see start to finish all at the same time. It's, it's that kind of thing that God is saying here. That's just a simple example to try to help you understand. But God sits way above it all. And that's why he can see the end from the beginning. He sees it all and everything that's in between because he is the most high God high above it all. As most high God, David tells us here, he reigns in sovereignty. He sees every detail. He knows every happening along the way. He is all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-wise. In verse 9, 
David just spoke to us here and he tells us he is most high above all the earth. He's seated way in the heavenlies. Now, it's interesting to me when you look in scripture sometimes to see what we can glean from the dark side, I'm going to call it, in just, a, in, um, just briefly here. I want to show you a couple of things that, um, that you may not have really realized from scripture, but I want to go to Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, this is one of the passages where we read about the uh, fall of Lucifer, when Lucifer fell from heaven. And I want to read that to you, beginning in verse 12. And we will read 12 through 17 of Isaiah chapter 14. It says this, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook heaven and who shook kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of his prisoners? So God is speaking to us here about the fall of Lucifer. But it's interesting there because in Lucifer's boast, he tells us a few things about this God most high. First of all, he, he knows who he is. And he says, I'm going to be like him. And then he tells us that he sits. He's on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. So in other words, at the most extreme north, in the uppermost of the heavens, the highest place of all is where God most high is. Now we know that Jesus affirmed Lucifer's fall from heaven in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. And in that passage, he is proclaiming, he's, he's talking to the disciples. He has just sent out the 70, and they have come back to him. And they're rejoicing, and they're going, oh, man, this is great. Even the demons are subject to us. And so Jesus then talks to them about that to correct their attitude. Because he tells them, he says, yes, I saw Satan fall from heaven. I know. He, he has fallen, but that's not what you rejoice. That's not your reason to rejoice. You don't rejoice over the fact that the demons and the powers of darkness are subject to us. You rejoice over the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and the fact that you are born again and you have life eternal. But in that passage, Jesus is affirming Lucifer's fall. So Lucifer here is telling us that God is in the extreme north. How about that? That he would even verify that because he knows. He knows the true God. He knows the most high God. Notice also in Luke chapter 8, this is also found in Mark chapter 5. But I want to read you this. This is another 
element that is interesting because it comes through the mouth of someone on the dark side, some of the demonic powers of darkness. But in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 28, I want to read this passage very quickly. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. So this is where we read about this demon-possessed man that comes out to Jesus when he gets to this place. And this man, it says, he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, or the demons inside of him cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. That was the demon speaking through this man. And he says he recognizes Jesus. He knows exactly who he is. The demonic forces in hell know exactly who God is. They know him. As a matter of fact, in Acts, um, when Paul um, came up, no, I'm sorry, Paul was, was serving the Lord, and um, these seven sons of Sceva decided, oh, wow, we want to try this too. And so they thought they could buy this. They thought they could fake it. And so they tried to um, cast out a demon from someone. And the demons jumped on them, and they said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? So you see, the demons even, even the powers of darkness, recognize who Jesus is and that God is the most high God. It's interesting that many people in our day won't recognize Jesus for who he is. And yet this showed us that the dark side, they know him. They know who he is. Jesus is the son of the most high God. Notice back in Psalm 97, 9, that it also speaks to us and tells us that God, this most high God, is exalted also above all other gods, little g, all other idols that are spoken about here, or false gods that people will believe in and some will worship. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 and 26, it says this, God is speaking again here, and he says this, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. So here we see that God is above all of creation, including the entire universe, all the stars, all the planets, all the constellations, all the galaxies. He's far above all of that. And as we explore more of outer space and see billions and billions and trillions of light years way out there, I mean, I, if, I can't even fathom where exactly God is because of that. Outer space is enormous. It's very vast. And yet God is above all of that. He created all of that with a, with a word, 
With his word, he created it. He made it all come to pass. He brought all of it together. And get this from this passage. What else he tells us? He says, God has a name for every one of them. Now, I don't know if it's the same name we've given them or not, but God named all the stars. He named all the planets. He named all of the galaxies. He's got a name for every one of them. And then it says not one of them fails. Not one of them falls out of arrangement. Not one of them is missing. It's interesting that, they, that all the, the planets and things have orbits around. And, you know, it's interesting because in Psalm 97.1, David just told us about how the heavens and the earth are to rejoice and to be glad. And it literally, the Hebrew word means to spin around, to spin around in praise. So I believe that the earth is spinning every day and every year because it's praising its creator. God told it to do that. And it's doing that as a spin dance of praise. Hallelujah. God is the most high God and he shares his glory with no one. In Isaiah 42, 8, it says this in verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Now, I want to share this with you. God is the only glorious one. And I love this passage. This is um, always a humorous passage to me in scripture because of what it brings out. Welcome to you as you join in. But I want to share this with you because what's happened here is that Israel has sinned. They've fallen into sin. There's a lot of wickedness in the land. Eli's the priest. His sons are committing wickedness. He doesn't reprove them. And, and God's God's had it. He's, he's angry with his people. And so they go to war with the Philistines and the Philistines win because God is uh, not pleased with his people. They've got sin in their camp and the, he can't fight for them. He can't fight for them the way he wants to. So the Philistines win this battle. Well, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. Now we have to understand that when Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle, and he built all these pieces. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where God would come down and dwell between the cherubim that were on the mercy seat with his people. So the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of the Almighty God. It represented God himself because he would come and tabernacle there. And so they took the Ark. Now, get this. Let's read verses 1 through 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says this, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon. Dagon was their god, their false god, and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in his place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who, came, who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, 
And he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Now I always get a bit of a chuckle out of this passage. I just, I love it because here we see evidence of the fact that God is most high and cannot and will not share his glory with anyone and cannot and will not be put, brought down to the level of a false God. I love this because he is saying, I'm glorious. I have all the glory. No one else has. No other false God can have this glory. And so God is proving it here. It's interesting. And I, I chuckle because would you want, you know, as you're listening to this, I would never want to serve a God that I had to take care of, that I had to set back up in its place because it fell down, or that I had to fix because its arms got broken off or something. I mean, how silly is that? that to me, that's just very silly. And so God is proving here that he is the most high God, and he shares a shelf, so to speak, with no one. He is not on the plane of any false idol. So they decide, well, we got to get rid of him. Instead of recognizing that he's the one true God and they need to bow to him, they don't get it. And so they decide instead to throw him away. Let's get rid of him and we're going to keep our false God, even though they had to stand him back up and fix him. How about that? But the point I'm making here is that this is a passage that proves to us and shows an example of how God is El Elyon. He alone is highest of all. No one and nothing else can compare to him. So what does this mean for us? I realize it's, it's um, getting late, so let's try to wrap this up here with a few more points. Quickly, I want to respect your time. I thank you for joining in. But the very first time we see God Most High mentioned in the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 14. And I'd like to read a small portion of that. In Genesis 14, beginning in verse 18, it says this, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Here it is. First time it shows up in scripture. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, meaning Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So here we see the priest of this God most high in the form of this Melchizedek coming to Abram, and he is coming representing God most high. He is this priest of God most high. So let's see. How, how did this God Most High, what did this God Most High think was important? What did he want to do? How did he want himself revealed? 
So when Melchizedek comes, he comes with an offer. He comes bringing something. He came bringing, the scriptures called it bread and wine, bread and juice, wine, juice of the vine. And it represents different things in scripture, but when they're used together, they typically represent a covenant. It even represents a marriage offer in the ancient Jewish wedding custom. So it's talking about a covenant meal, sharing in fellowship. He came representing God Most High who wants relationship with people, with you and with me. This God Most High who sits above the heavens, higher than anything, higher than anyone, who has created the vast universe that we can't even fathom the end of. And we've gone trillions and trillions and trillions of light years out there to find various things. And yet we can't even fathom the end of it. He is that high, and yet he comes offering relationship, covenant relationship with you and with me. How about that? It's the same thing that Jesus did. It represents the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that bread and wine. We see that in the Last Supper. And Jesus did it. He said, this is my body broken for you so that you can be in relationship with me. Melchizedek also came with authority. He was representing God Most High, the one who owns it all the one who controls it all, the one who is sovereign over it all, the one who sees and oversees it all. And he came with a message. He was blessing Abram, and he was blessing El Elyon. Did you know that's the job of a priest in the, in the scriptures? Is to bless God and to bless his people. He defined who El Elyon, or God Most High, is. He's the possessor of heaven and earth, literally including all of outer space and the whole of the universe as well as the earth. He came speaking about this God who is the possessor of all. He's the possessor of heaven and he's the possessor of earth. He owns earth. So when he wants anything done on the earth, he gets it done because he owns it. It's his property. Give you just one brief example. Jesus came from praying one night. His disciples were already in a boat in the middle of the sea. And he comes walking on water. How could he do that? He could do that because he owns it. He owns all the elements of the earth. He owns the earth. He's the possessor of it. He's the creator of it. And so the earth is under his authority and his control. He is God most high. So he could come and he could say, water, be a floor for me right now because I'm going to walk across you. And it would obey it. It obeyed its voice, his voice, because he owns it. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And this is our God most high. Nobody else could command that. No one else had that authority. 
No one else could do that, including the devil. Remember, Satan is not a rival to God. He is not equal to God. Nothing and no one can be likened unto our God Most High. So El Elyon tells us that he is God Most High. He has no equal and he has no rival. There's a song, a contemporary praise song. I love that song and I love that line. He has no equal and he has no rival. He alone, God alone rules. God alone possesses everything. God alone owns everything. God alone controls everything. God alone sees everything. And he alone commands and his word is done always. So we see God most high here. And then Abraham responds because he's had an encounter with this God. He's been invited into fellowship with this God. And God's word effects change for him. And so he worships. He overcomes the temptation. He resists taking anything from anyone because he says, no, my God most high is my God. He will take care of me. So I believe there's some application for us. And I want to finish up with these few points right here and one last scripture found in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5. Because of El Elyon, God most high, the one who has no equal, no rival, the one who controls, owns, rules, and is sovereign and has all authority over everything. He is able to care for us and effect the change that we need in whatever our circumstance is to meet our needs. And I believe Peter tapped into that. When in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he says this. In verse 7, he says, I want to read verse 6 too. He says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Think about this. The great God, the God who is in the uttermost north that we can't even fathom how far away that is from us. The one who created the vast universe and stuck one tiny planet down in it called Earth. And then he created people and he came to this Earth to have fellowship with those people. And this God is the one that Peter is speaking of, that he is inviting us to cast all of our care upon him, because whatever we're going through, whatever we need from him, it matters to him. Think about that. The great God of the universe, yet he cares for you and he cares for me. There's no one stronger than our God. There's no one more qualified than God Most High. There's no one more compassionate. There's no one who cares more. There's no one that's more able. There's no one that's more loving. There's no other God that can compare.
compare to him anywhere in the world or in the universe. No one is higher than he. He is above all the rest. He is God most high, and he cares for you and me. How beautiful, how beautiful is that? I hope that encourages you to cast all of your cares upon him because this great God most high cares for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this message. I pray for all who have heard this and all who will hear it. I pray that your word goes forth with power and authority under the anointing of the Spirit of God and that you will accomplish everything that you desire with this message so that your people are blessed, your people are edified, your people are built up in the faith, and your people are drawn into a deeper, closer relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me. I pray this has been a blessing to you. And as I said, we will finish up volume one in a couple more weeks. So again, next week, we'll be right back with another study. And I thank you very much. I pray you have a blessed evening and that God will bless you in every way and that he will supply what you need and draw you to a deeper place with him. In Jesus' name, God bless you.